Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Chapter 13 of Edison's Conquest of Mars. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Edison's Conquest of Mars by Garrett P. Service. Chapter 13 One of Mars' Moons Deimos proved to be, as we had expected, about six miles in diameter. Its mean density is not very great, so that the acceleration of gravity did not exceed one two-thousandths of the Earth's. Consequently, the weight of a man turning the scales at a hundred and fifty pounds at home was here only about one ounce. The result was that we could move about with greater ease than on the golden asteroid, and some of the scientific men eagerly resumed their interrupted experiments. But the attraction of this little satellite was so slight that we had to be very careful not to move too swiftly in going about, lest we should involuntarily leave the ground and sail out into space, as, it will be remembered, happened to one of the fugitives during the fight on the asteroid. Not only would such an adventure have been an uncomfortable experience, but it might have endangered the success of our scheme. Our present distance from the surface of Mars did not exceed 12,500 miles, and we had reason to believe that Martians possessed telescopes powerful enough to enable them not merely to see the electrical ships at such a distance, but also to catch sight of us individually. Although the curtain cloud still rested on the planet, it was probable that the Martians would send some of their airships up to its surface in order to determine what our fate had been. From that point of vantage, with their exceedingly powerful glasses, we feared that they might be able to detect anything unusual upon or in the neighborhood of Deimos. The ships are moored. Accordingly, strict orders were given, not only that the ships should be moored on that side of the satellite which is perpetually turned away from Mars, but that, without orders, no one should venture round on the other side of the little globe, or even on the edge of it, where he might be seen in profile against the sky. Still, of course, it was essential that we, on our part, should keep a close watch, and so a number of sentinels were selected, whose duty it was to place themselves at the edge of Deimos, where they could peep over the horizon, so to speak, and catch sight of the globe of our enemies. The distance of Mars from us was only about three times its own diameter. Consequently, it shut off a large part of the sky, as viewed from our position. 
but in order to see its whole surface it was necessary to go a little beyond the edge of the satellite, on that side which faced Mars. At the suggestion of Colonel Smith, who had so frequently stalked Indians that devices of this kind readily occurred to his mind, the sentinels all wore garments corresponding in color to that of the soil of the asteroid, which was a dark reddish-brown hue. This would tend to conceal them from the prying eyes of the Martians. The commander himself frequently went around the edge of the planet in order to take a look at Mars, and I often accompanied him. Marvelous Discoveries The Martians were the builders of the Great Sphinx and the Pyramids. I shall never forget one occasion when, lying flat on the ground, and cautiously worming our way around on the side towards Mars, we had just begun to observe it with our telescopes, when I perceived, against the vast curtain of smoke, a small glittering object which I instantly suspected to be an airship. I called Mr. Edison's attention to it, and we both agreed that it was undoubtedly one of the Martians' aerial vessels, probably on the lookout for us. A short time afterwards, a large number of airships made their appearance at the upper surface of the clouds, moving to and fro, and, although with our glasses we could only make out the general form of the ships, without being able to discern the Martians upon them, yet we had not the least doubt that they were sweeping the sky in every direction in order to determine whether we had been completely destroyed or had retreated to a distance from the planet. Even when that sight of Mars on which we were looking had passed into night, we could still see the guard ships circling above the clouds, their presence being betrayed by the faint twinkling of the electric lights that they bore. Finally, after about a week had passed, the Martians evidently made up their minds that they had annihilated us, and that there was no longer danger to be feared. Convincing evidence that they believed we should not be heard from again was furnished when the withdrawal of the great curtain of cloud began. A GREAT PHENOMENON This phenomenon first manifested itself by a gradual thinning of the vaporous shield, until, at length, we began to perceive the red surface of the planet dimly shining through it. Thinner and rarer it became, and, after the lapse of about eighteen hours, it had completely disappeared, and the huge globe shone out again, reflecting the light of the sun from its continents and oceans with a brightness that, in contrast with the all-enveloping night to which we had so long been subjected, seemed unbearable to our eyes. Indeed, so bright was the illumination which fell upon the surface of Deimos, that the number of persons who had been permitted to pass round on the exposed side of the satellite was carefully restricted. In the blaze of light which had been suddenly poured upon us, we felt somewhat like malefactors unexpectedly enveloped in the illumination of a policeman's dark lantern. Meanwhile, the object which we had in view in retreating to the satellite was not lost sight of, and the services of the chief linguists of the expedition were again called into use for the purpose of acquiring a new language. The experiment was conducted in the flagship. The fact that this time it was not a monster belonging to an utterly alien race upon whom we were to experiment, but a beautiful daughter of our common mother Eve, added zest and interest as well as the most confident hopes of success to the efforts of those who were striving to understand the accents of her tongue. Lingual Difficulties Ahead Still the difficulty was very great notwithstanding the conviction of the professors that her language would turn out to be a form of the great Indo-European speech, 
from which many tongues of civilized men upon the earth had been derived. The learned men, to tell the truth, gave the poor girl no rest. For hours at a time they would ply her with interrogations by voice and gesture, until, at length, wearied beyond endurance, she would fall asleep before their faces. Then she would be left undisturbed for a little while, but the moment her eyes opened again the merciless professors flocked around her once more, and resumed the tedious iteration of their experiments. Our Heidelberg professor was the chief inquisitor, and he revealed himself to us in a new and entirely unexpected light. No one could have anticipated the depth and variety of his resources. He placed himself in front of the girl, and gestured and gesticulated, bowed, nodded, shrugged his shoulders, screwed his face into an infinite variety of expressions, smiled, laughed, scowled, and accompanied all these dumb shows with posturings, exclamations, inquiries, only half expressed in words, and cadences which, by some ingenious manipulation of the tones of the voice, he managed to make as marvelous expressive of his desires. He was a universal actor, comedian, tragedian, buffoon, all in one. There was no shade of human emotion which he did not seem capable of giving expression to. The professor does his best. His every attitude was a symbol, and all his features became, in quick succession, types of thought and exponents of hidden feelings, while his inquisitive nose stood forth in the midst of their ceaseless play, like a perpetual interrogation point that would have electrified the sphinx into life, and set its stone lips gabbling answers and explanations. The girl looked on, partly astonished, partly amused, and partly comprehending. Sometimes she smiled, and then the beauty of her face became most captivating. Occasionally she burst into a cheery laugh when the professor was executing some of his extraordinary gyrations before her. It was a marvelous exhibition of what the human intellect, when all its powers are concentrated upon a single object, is capable of achieving. It seemed to me as I looked at the performance that if all the races of men who had been struck asunder at the foot of the Tower of Babel by the miracle which made the tongues of each to speak a language unknown to the others could be brought together again at the foot of the same tower, with all the advantages which thousands of years of education had in the meantime imparted to them, they would be able, without any miracle, to make themselves mutually